This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Whoop, the fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. Whether you're an elite athlete or just someone looking to get in better shape, the truth is that your workouts are only one part of a fitness routine. To reach your true potential, you need to understand what's going on with your body all the time. You know, your competitive advantage is in your downtime. And if you're not measuring the impact of your downtime, you're simply missing a massive piece of the performance puzzle. That's Kristen Holmes, a former member of the U.S. national field hockey team and also one of the most successful coaches in Ivy League history. She's now the vice president of performance science at Whoop. And as she explains it, many athletes make the mistake of working out based simply on how they feel or what their training schedule says they're supposed to do that day. The problem with this is that we're not reacting to our actual physiological state, which is determined by many factors. How you're eating, how you're hydrating, you know, are you buffering stress and rest throughout the day? What does your sleep look like? Are you getting into deeper stages of sleep? All of these things are massively influential on how you're gonna show up tomorrow. Whoop allows you to easily track all of these variables. It's a lightweight, 100% waterproof wrist strap that calculates recovery, strain, and sleep metrics so you really know what you're ready for and can learn how to take better care of yourself between workouts. And that's what I absolutely love about Whoop is that this is data you can action. We have this incredibly elegant mobile app that gives the user all sorts of really interesting feedback that's consumable, it's digestible. So people start to understand very quickly what are the behaviors that are gonna be really useful and help me toward my goal of being able to show up with as much mental you know, clarity and, and physical strength and you know, all the things that you want in your life to really be present. Learn more about how Whoop can help you reach your potential by training and recovering smarter at Whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. For a limited time, outside podcast listeners get 15% off a membership. Just enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Over the years, decidedly unscientific research has shown that the single most common fantasy among outside magazine readers is building a cabin in the woods. Because who doesn't want a cabin in the woods, right? And if you're the rare fan of outside who doesn't share this fantasy, go order a copy of the coffee table book Cabin Porn and get back to us. Anyway, to make our readers happy, Outside runs a story about building your own cabin every few years or so. And in August, we did it again. And this time around, the story was a huge hit. It quickly became one of the most popular stories we published in 2020. Now, this might be because the state of the world really, really makes us all want to go live in the woods right now. But there was something else about this particular story that spoke to readers. And that was the fact that the guys who built the cabin had absolutely no idea what the hell they were doing. We had a neighbor, his name was uh, Jordy, and he was a aircraft mechanic at Boeing. And, you know, we're trying to lift this nearly 30-foot-long, 300-pound piece of lumber onto the highest point of the cabin and using all manner of ropes and pulleys and, and wood. And he came down 
And he took a look at it, and he was just like, holy shit. That's Pat Hutchinson, describing a nearly disastrous moment during the construction of the cabin he built with his good friend Brian Schatz in Washington's Cascade Mountains. Back in 2018, Pat and Brian left good jobs to pursue this dream. They were both in their early 30s, and predictably, they posted images of their progress on social media. This caught the attention of outside senior research editor Luke Whalen. Yeah, so I've actually known Brian for several years. We did a fellowship at a magazine together, and ever since then, I've followed him on Instagram. And a couple of summers ago, I was at work procrastinating, scrolling through my Instagram feed, and I start seeing these gorgeous photos of this cabin that Brian and his friend were building. And I'm from Seattle. I've spent my whole childhood in the Cascade Mountains and looking at this idyllic existence they were living in the forest, building this catalog-worthy tiny home. I mean, sitting at my desk, I was pretty jealous, to be honest. Right, which I totally understand, because like me, you're inside all day editing stories about being outside. Exactly, yeah. And eventually I realized, well, wait, this could actually be a great story. So I got in touch with Brian, and he was up for it. And so that's how the assignment started. And, you know, later when we were recording for this podcast, he was able to really clearly articulate just why he was willing to abandon a really promising, successful career to chase a dream. I think there's this idea that, you know, work, I don't know, shouldn't be fun. Or if you're not enjoying your work, then you just kind of have to deal with it. And I just, I can't really get behind that idea. I think we, you know... Again, this is also a cliche, but there's a finite amount of time that you have, and I want to spend my days doing something that I'm enjoying. Yeah, Brian does do a pretty good job of saying what a lot of people feel. And it, I think the fact that Brian and Pat actually went for it is is really part of the reason why the story resonated so much with our readers. And, and the other part of it, too, is just this idea of embarking on a cool adventure with a really good friend. I think that really a- appealed to a lot of people. You know, even before we had this global pandemic, it's really difficult to make time to do stuff with friends as adults. You know, it's hard enough to find time to get a beer or a coffee, uh, much less, um, you know, spend many months in the forest building a cabin. Okay, but there is another side of this, and that's that this choice to leave a stable job, to do something with your hands... It sounds like the choice you make when you're really, really entitled. I mean, yeah, I I think some people definitely pegged Brian and Pat as the sort of stereotypical discontented millennials. Um, And while the social media response to the story was almost all super positive, there were definitely some eye rolls in there, too. One person said something like, see how far you get into this before wanting to throw the authors into a wood chipper. (laughs) (laughs) there's there's almost no negative comment that i saw that i didn't at least partially agree with yeah yeah exactly but in all seriousness these guys as as soon as you start reading the story or hear them talk i mean it's really clear that they're thoughtful self-aware guys who work really hard to save the money to to embark on this adventure and You know, I had to say one thing that became really clear to me as I worked with them on the story was that this was an incredibly difficult project, like super brutal at points. And, you know, I I never would have guessed that based on the images that I initially was seeing on on my Instagram feed. A finished cabin 
that looks very nice and I think that you know that's what we ended up with is a lot like a you know highlight reel or someone's Instagram profile or something like that I mean everything that's in the cabin was the cut and the fit and the shape that we were ultimately like yeah that one's perfect but what people didn't see is like all the mistakes we made that we took down and then tried again and redid and there were a lot of those So this story really begins in 2011. That's when Pat and Brian met for the first time at Outdoor Retailer, this massive trade show for the outdoor industry. They were both freelance journalists, and they bonded over their attempts to network and score free gear, which, to be honest, is why many journalists go to that show. Afterwards, they struck up a dialogue online, messaging each other almost daily on Gchat. The guys were kindred spirits of a sort, men in their late 20s, were more interested in having adventures than settling down. And this had them feeling increasingly out of sync with the people around them. As fewer and fewer of our peers were doing what we were doing and feeling the way that we were feeling, it was like, oh, maybe we're doing something wrong here. People were having kids, people were getting married, all that sort of thing. And I was just like, oh, I thought we were just getting whatever jobs and then going and doing cool shit on the weekends and people are like getting stuff done and uh and we're just not things get like weirdly serious around that age and i i couldn't i never really understood exactly why but it just it was brian and pat were taking lots of trips together and seeking out wilder and wilder experiences that made them feel like they were escaping the rat race like that time they went to olympic national park in washington and acted as if they were on a Discovery Channel survival show. We decided we wanted to live off the land. We had, I think we had one backpacker meal and one cliff bar each. We kind of bushwhacked to this sort of secluded beach, and um, there were a bunch of logs there, and so we kind of built up this little platform because the tide was going to rise, and we put a bunch of ferns on the platform, and that's where we stayed. And then we ate mussels for like three days straight. And dandelion greens. Dandelion greens, yeah. And the first meal of mussels was amazing. So good. And then it got really tired, really quick. <laughs> Despite their zany expeditions, their careers were also getting more serious. Brian became a staff reporter at a national magazine in San Francisco. I was covering issues like immigration, guns, politics. And Pat got a job at a travel-focused technology company in Seattle. They both began to feel caged by desk life. They were inside, under the hum of fluorescent lights, their hours loaded with phone calls, emails, meetings, and Slack chats. kind of felt like death by a thousand cuts, right? I worked with great people, I had great bosses, but in large part it was just the daily, you know, just kind of feeling bored and lazy and stuck and trapped. And it was just kind of feeling that like day after day after day after day. Yeah, there was never a specific moment where it was like, I've got to, you know, get out of here and do something else. It was really just sort of losing some of what used to fulfill you in that work. And that pressure or that feeling just grew more and more intense over the years. Their online chats started to fill up with imaginings of a different kind of life. We joked about 
all kinds of jobs that we could do. I was, I had gone skydiving twice, I think, and thought that surely my life calling was becoming a skydive instructor. You were pretty serious about that. Serious about wanting to be serious about it. And then I never did it again. And then Pat was into scuba diving. Yeah, I was really thinking they had just like a scuba diving school up here in Seattle. And so I thought because I had like my, you know, recreational lowest rung of the ladder open water dive certification that I was well on my way to being like a search and rescue diver or like an underwater welder or something. Eventually, the pursuit of adventure would lead them to believe that maybe they should be building cabins and making a living at it. They both gained experience fixing things up. Brian was living on old sailboats in a marina in Oakland to avoid paying the Bay Area's exorbitant rents. The first boat he moved on to required, well, rather extensive renovations. I remember being inside and it was like just filthy. The person had it before just had never cleaned. There was mold covered the walls. There were like actual jars of urine in there. And I remember the harbor master yelling from outside saying, you know, this thing's been to Hawaii. And I was just like, man, I don't I don't care about Hawaii. I just need a place to sleep. And so I I bought it and it was it was 700 bucks. And I lived on that boat for a year and a half. And I like showered with a hose on the dock. And then after being there a while, another boat became available, which I bought for one dollar. And that gives you sort of an idea of, you know, the quality of it. Meanwhile, Pat had purchased a tiny off-grid cabin in Washington State's Cascade Mountains for $7,000 as a base camp for expeditions. The place was in rough shape, and Brian and other friends would come out for short stints to help him fix it up. It was so bad that it it really didn't matter if you made it even worse. And, and Pat was like such a gracious host for all of us going up there and working on it where we could be making all kinds of mistakes and he just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And uh, it just wouldn't matter. It was just like this big fort that a bunch of friends got together in and had an awesome time. And, you know, over time, it kind of slowly got somewhat better and better. But it was one of the beauties of it was it being just kind of a piece of crap that, you know, you didn't have to worry about. The more time they spent at the cabin, the more they enjoyed the construction work. And so that pipe dream they'd had, it began growing into an obsession. That was the fantasy life raft that we would always return to when it was just a slow day at work. You'd be like, man, you know what I'd much rather be doing than sitting here writing emails is like out in the woods, just building a wall or putting a roof on something and it'd be cold and rainy, but he wouldn't care. And then those conversations just became like every single day we were talking about it. And I think at some point it was like, you know, could we really do this? The moment they got truly serious about the idea was naturally in a bar. It was February of 2018, and they had gone to a Bon Iver concert in Milwaukee. Afterwards, they were having drinks with friends and got to explaining their vision. Their friends said, you guys should definitely do that. A close confidant named Dan, who was building a career in the maritime industry in Seattle, even offered to invest in their first cabin. I liked the fact that I was giving my money to people I cared about and not just like giving it to bankers and Wall Street people. But there was another reason Dan was eager to help make the cabin a reality. It would give him a place to go barefoot, which is a rather 
odd passion he has. I just, I'm always barefoot and I love being out in the woods barefoot and I love I love being barefoot with, where people don't want me to be barefoot more than anything, I think. So being barefoot on a construction site where like nobody could tell me not to be, I was like all about it. That's when we really decided to do it. It's like, oh man, if, you know, if Dan believes in us and we believe in us and we can get cheap land, like, let's just do it. So the guys went for it, though they skipped some critical planning steps that would come back to haunt them. I mean, I think we thought we had thought through the logistics, but we really hadn't. I think we decided we should be able to build the cabin and get the land for $20,000. We literally hadn't priced anything out. It was just like a number we grabbed out of thin air. It was an investment that between the three of us we could make and not feel like we were going to, you know, just be destitute at the end of it. And we were wrong. We were terribly, terribly wrong. They would keep having these meetings and I'd be like, should we like write a budget? And they'd be like, uh, I don't know, whatever. And then they just like keep talking about the cool stuff they wanted to do. Every morning we'll have a little fire just to smell the smoke and to feel alive. And we'll have our cup of coffee and we'll just be glad we aren't inside. And let's not get mad at each other when things don't, you know, it's going to be stressful. Of course it's going to be stressful. And that's all fine. That's all part of it. We were so optimistic about every single aspect of it. Even optimistic about the assumption that things would be hard. I think we had seen some picture on the internet of this cabin that had a wall that was... It was attached to pulleys, and you could lower that wall into a deck. And so it would be this cool indoor-outdoor thing. And we were thinking, like, God, that would be awesome. Let's just, let's definitely do that. And I had this idea that we would, in the middle of, like, the living room, uh, have a giant cutout in the floor that would just be, you know, super thick plexiglass or something, and then have lights that shined down so that when you are in the cabin... Like at night, you would look down and it would just be the forest floor illuminated beneath you. And then I think at some point I like finally looked it up and to get a sheet of plexiglass that would have been that big and that thick would have been something like six or $7,000. <laughs> In late March of 2018, they made an offer of $3,000 for a quarter acre of raw land near Pat's cabin in the Cascades. It was a sloping meadow of ferns, a short walk from the Skykomish River, festooned with mature Douglas fir, big-leaf maple, and cedar. The owners accepted almost immediately. The plan was to start building in June and finish by the end of the summer. As the first day of construction approached, Brian took a leave of absence from his journalism position and Pat quit his job altogether. They drove Pat's big gray cargo van up the western slope of the mountains and into a dark, mossy forest. Once they got their tools out, it all started off exactly like they had imagined it would. The first few days when we were actually at the building site, we were just kind of like digging big holes and mixing concrete with water that we brought up from the river. And it was just super fun because it was like we were finally out there working really hard. And it just felt just incredibly invigorating. This was something we'd been needing for a really long time. Yeah, I remember it feeling right pretty much immediately. This sounds sort of cliche, but kind of like waking up in a way. It felt like we were really returning to something that we had left somehow. And I think it just really became a sense of we're doing exactly what we should be doing. 
We'll be right back. At the top of the episode, we talked about Whoop, the 24-7 fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. Once you set your fitness goals with Whoop, it tells you how long and how hard you can train based on a sophisticated analysis of your body's readiness. By calculating data, like your heart rate variability and the amount of time you spend in different sleep cycles, Whoop knows if you're ready to push or need to dial it back. As Whoop Vice President of Performance Science Kristen Holmes sees it, this enables everyone from experienced athletes to people just getting started with training to get fitter faster by avoiding mistakes. Whoop just helps accelerate your wisdom on how your body is adapting. That knowledge can help you make better decisions day to day as opposed to three weeks down the track realizing, oh man, that was a really crummy three weeks, you know? Whoop doesn't let you get that far down a bad path. Like we're gonna interrupt that before it becomes a, a real problematic cycle. At Outside, we've gotten so excited about Whoop's ability to help athletes reach their true potential that we've partnered with them for a first of its kind study that has runners basing their workouts on how recovered they are. It's called Project PR, the Personalized Recovery Study, and we'll be reporting the findings on Outside Online later this year. You know, there's this opportunity to, I think, really accelerate fitness gains by just being more dialed in to how your body is responding and adapting to training. Learn more about how Whoop can help you reach your potential at whoop.com. That's W-H-O-O-P.com. For a limited time, Outside Podcast listeners get 15% off a membership. Just enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. Brian and Pat's work on their cabin in the woods had begun just like they'd always dreamed it would. But then, reality kicked in. They had expected to take breaks for hikes and swimming in the river. But as they quickly realized, there was no time for that. I think we always over-anticipated or, or expected that we would accomplish things in a shorter period of time than we did. To the point where actually we came to realize that on any given day, we would probably be able to accomplish half of what we set out to do. Brian was trying to put in a bunch of bolts to sort of tie the foundation together. And what you think like, oh, how hard is it to just drill a hole and put a bolt in and tighten it? That's going to take like 20 minutes. But then, you know, you realize that these aren't just small pieces of wood. They're big four inch by four inch posts and the drill bit gets hot and it gets dull and it just rained and the entire surface of our build site is now just mud which is essentially wet clay in all reality it seem to be raining more up there or and so his shoes are caked with clay and he's slipping and falling down and you know maybe the drill bit's not long enough to reach all the way through so he has to come from two different directions to get the hole. And it's like, you know, just putting those bolts in maybe took like four or five hours. The guys would wake up at 5 a.m. to be at the lumber yard when it opened. And they'd work away until it was dark, which is around 10 p.m. in the Pacific Northwest summer. Then they'd drive 15 minutes to Pat's off-grid cabin where they'd scarf down a thrown-together dinner and crash for the night. Fairly soon, they were exhausted and cranky. Once we realized that we were going to be really pushed for time, we started pushing our days longer and longer. 
and doing more consecutive really long days, which really started to wear down on the amount of sleep that we were getting and our moods. At times, things got tense, especially when they made mistakes, which happened a lot. But the guys developed a system for blowing off steam. They'd have tantrums, like big, loud, oversized toddler tantrums. Sometimes you just, you fuck something up and and your your anger level just like shoots through your head and you look down and there's like a scrap piece of wood and there's like you can think of nothing else but grabbing it and throwing it as far as you possibly can and sometimes you're like cursing when you're doing it and stomping around but then like almost immediately after you feel pretty good yeah man get it out this is so stupid we shouldn't be out here this is all dumb it just felt great in that moment to do those sorts of things. And I highly recommend to anyone to have a little temper tantrum every once in a while, as long as you don't hurt anybody and you clean up after yourself. One of their biggest on-the-job learning experiences was budgeting. After spending $3,000 on the land, they allotted $17,000 for materials to build the cabin. But after the first month of work, they realized they'd need to spend a lot more. Like, a whole lot more. This caused particular stress for their friend and investment partner, Dan. That was when things started getting pretty stressful. It was like every single week, every paycheck I got, I just had to dump like half of my paycheck into this project. And those were some of the days where I was like, holy crap, what did I get myself into? By July, Pat and Brian realized there was no way they were going to meet the end of August deadline they'd set to finish the cabin. At that point, they made the decision to essentially cut themselves off from their friends and family until they were done. We had to tell other people, no, we can't make that birthday party. You know, telling my mom, no, I can't come to see you because I've got to work on this cabin. And I think what was so confusing to other people is that it, by all outward appearances, seemed to be like Brian and I were just fucking off in the woods and playing around and building a cabin. But for them, it was a lot more than just a fun project in the woods personal stakes had gotten pretty serious. You often hear people say, you should do the job that, you know, you would do for free. And we had spent years literally fantasizing about what the perfect job would be. And this ultimately is what we decided would be the perfect job. This to us was at that time our fantasy job. And the idea that we would be able to live out that fantasy and then have it not work out, just like, where do you go from there. If your ultimate fantasy job, you like don't like it enough to do it all the way through, then what's left to try? And I guess the answer is you just got to get over it and, you know, live your life and uh, find satisfaction elsewhere. Which sounds awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As the days and weeks went on, they were getting farther behind schedule and spending way over their budget. But still, The cabin was taking shape, and the guys were enjoying the physical effort and the feelings that came with it. One of the biggest things was you really felt like you earned the right to relax. Like, we were just exhausted and always sore. I remember my hands were sore for, like, months. During the day when you're working, you wouldn't really notice it, and then you'd get back at the end of the day, and they would just, like, ache. And then we'd cook up just a giant pot of some food, often slop, which would be a collection of whatever previous dinners we had all poured into one pot and heated up. 
we just eat tons of food and feel super satisfied. I slept amazingly well. It just felt like we were actually doing something with our day. They did need to get a little help from friends at crucial moments, like raising a wall that included a massive bay window. They did all the framing while the wall was lying down, and then when they tried to lift it, they could barely get it off the ground. My brother was up at the time, and we go to lift it, and we get it up to about like our knees and then just drop it. It was so heavy. So they drove to Seattle to gather a group of friends to help, including Dan. While we're all having beers, they're like, so here's the deal, everybody. We've got this huge wall. It has to get lifted. It's just huge. And so we just need everybody. They basically just came out and like called out the village, you know, like uh, for a barn raising. That's really what it felt like. The call was answered. Eight hungover friends drove up to the cabin the next morning, tied a support rope to a nearby tree, set up a phone to capture the moment on video, and started lifting. All right, team. You guys ready? Woo! One... Two, three. Oh, it was, it was terrifying. It was terrifying because, yeah, it, it, you don't know what it's going to do. I mean, we were all just like barking orders at each other and like trying to stay calm and trying to stay coordinated. Sorry, guys. You got it. You got it. As we're going further and further along, we're just seeing more and more possible disasters, like, or it just could have like slipped and fallen down on us, you know? <laughs> like, who knows? Everyone just rallied. We got the wall stood up and, you know, it just like worked out really well. Okay, put it in. Yeah! Woo! So now the thing is, how are we going to get that rope? <laughs> then there was the ridge beam, that 300 pound piece of lumber that Pat mentioned at the very beginning of this episode. It needed to be placed on the highest point of the cabin. So the guys devised a makeshift system of pulleys with the plan of pulling it into place by tying them into Pat's Subaru. When their neighbor Jordy, an aircraft mechanic, spotted what they were doing, he was initially freaked out. But then he loaned them some ratchet straps and cheered them along. And it looked insane, right? Because there's all these ropes going in all these different directions, all this wood underneath it, and then ropes going to a car up on the road, and then, like, a bunch of people just pulling on it. And I think Brian eventually just climbed a ladder and just, like, propped it up on his shoulder or something. I think the final push was rather simple in all reality. That, in some ways, was the most stressful moment of all, because once we got it on, that 30 seconds between when we got it on and once we put a level on it, because it's just like, if this isn't right, I have no, no idea how we're going to get it down and fix the situation. Uh, and it turned out to just be like dead on level. August went by, then September. Brian had to return to work while Pat had to find work. And they weren't even halfway done with the cabin. After three and a half months, the inside was completely raw. No insulation, no cabinets, no bathroom, no flooring. They hadn't even put in the front door. And to Dan, the whole structure still felt like a house of cards. And I remember we'd be like talking and having a couple drinks and I just like moved a little bit and the whole cabin just like shook. <laughs> and I was, and, I, and like we all kind of felt it and I just stopped and I was like, what was that? And they were like, what? And I was like, no, the cabin just shook. <laughs> And they kind of were like awkwardly just trying to ignore it. And I was like, no, 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 no. The guys kept pushing ahead through the winter. Brian would fly up from the Bay Area whenever he could. 
It was a historically snowy season in the Pacific Northwest, which made the road to the cabin impassable, meaning they had to sled in their supplies with snowshoes. Finally, in June of 2019, a year after they broke ground and $30,000 over budget, it was finished. And it was beautiful. 384 square feet of living space, with exposed wood everywhere, an open floor plan, and a loft. The trim was burned to a charcoal black using Japanese wood preservation techniques. It had custom lights and a shower with exposed copper piping and retro brass valves. But the cabin's most prized feature was a $2,000 electric toilet that incinerated human waste into odorless ash. The biggest fan of this special edition turned out to be Pat's mom, who made her first visit to the cabin after it was completed. I have this very vivid memory of she came in and she was, you know, so complimentary. And then she went into the bathroom and used the incinerator toilet and came out. And I kid you not, she was crying. The incinerator toilet was running and she gave me a hug and she was just like, I'm just so proud of you. (laughs) I was like, are you proud of me or is it the incinerator toilet that you're proud of? You know, that was probably the proudest moment for me is, you know, her being so proud. So they'd done it taken a risk to chase a dream, and then seen it through. And it felt really good. I don't know what percentage it would be of, like, you know, hardship, uh, for lack of a better word, to good times, but it was it was a blast. We were up there having a great time, two friends hanging out in the woods, you know, more often than not pulling off what we were setting out to do. And it was, you know, one of the better experiences I've probably ever had. But of course, now the guys were broke, which meant it was time to do what they'd planned all along, sell the cabin. So they had the resources to build another, and then maybe another. Because their cabin had no traditional septic system or source of water, banks wouldn't lend on it, which meant they had to attract buyers who could pay cash. Eventually, they decided to allow seller financing, a deal that effectively turned Brian, Pat, and Dan into a bank that would receive regular payments from the buyer over five years. Four months after putting the cabin up for sale, it sold for $115,000. The guys had more than doubled their investment, if you assume their hourly rate for labor was roughly zero. They did not immediately start a new build. We needed like a little break, but I think pretty quickly, we just sort of resumed the same conversations we'd been having for years, which was like, you know, What will the next cabin look like? Where should it be? What should we do? Brian has left his journalism job for good now, and he's in carpentry school. Pat works for a company making retro-looking camper trailers. And they've purchased a plot of land in the same area as the first cabin, with the plan to begin building a new one when the COVID-19 pandemic has faded enough to make that possible. I think that we've got our basic design figured out, which will be smaller and simpler You know, I think we're really excited to put into practice a lot of the lessons we learned from the last one, which is not to just make a giant, steep, (laughs) super tall roof uh, that you can't stand on or or work on effectively. And I would would just add, if anyone wants to buy a cabin that we make, (laughs) please let us know. We will build one for you. Right, Brian? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
This episode was produced by Luke Whalen and edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music is by Robbie Carver. You can read Brian Schatz and Patrick Hutchinson's story about building their cabin on Outside Online. And while you're there, please consider making a contribution to Outside to fund the storytelling we do on this podcast. You can do that right now at outsideonline.com backslash podcast listener. We really appreciate your support. If you want to connect with Brian and Pat about having them build a cabin for you, find them on Instagram. They're at Landing Pad Cabins. This episode was brought to you by Whoop, the fitness tracker that gets you training smarter by giving you feedback on every moment of your day. For a limited time, outside podcast listeners get 15% off a Whoop membership. Go to whoop.com and enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. That's W-H-O-O-P dot com. We'll be back next week.